episode of Mentally Unscripted, the uh, the podcast where you come to hear uh, two regular guys talk about complex topics and give you new ways of thinking about them and hopefully communicating those ideas with your friends and family. This is Paul. I'm here with Scott. Scott, how are you today? I'm good. And I take that regular guy's comment personally. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm irregular if I'm anything. Okay. <laughs> so you're, you're somewhere out on some spectrum that we can't define. Is what you're exactly. Saying? Yeah. It's a spectrum that we have not uh, identified yet. Oh man. Okay. Well that's, that's fair. Uh, I, I guess, I guess maybe it's, it's more, it's like, these are ideas for, for, for all of us and not just for the elites. Maybe that's where I'm going. <laughs> two non-elite guys that are talking about complex ideas. Exactly. I'll go along with that. <laughs> okay. All right. There we go. Uh, so, how is your week going? How, how is, uh, I mean, I, I, we were talking offline before we started recording and it just, it's, it's kind of a crazy cycle time in terms of, you know, summer's coming around, everyone's getting excited about getting outside. And right. As soon as that happens, we start to have these crazy news prints, <laughs> new, kind of these events coming out, which is, which is somewhat of what we're going to be talking about today. But I mean, how, how's your week going with all that going? Oh, so far so good. It is unbearably hot here in Denver. Um, yep. which, you know, we, we get a, we get some hundred degree days during the summer, but usually not in June. So this is a little different for us. Um, and it was fairly cool just a couple weeks ago. So it's, it's amazing how quickly it changed. Yeah. Um, how about you? I know you've only been back up in Montana for a short time, but well, yeah, how are things so up there? It's, uh, it's, it's similar where, uh, we had a couple of days where it got up to uh, high nineties, which is, is not normal or abnormal for this time of year, similar to what you're saying. Uh, cause the, the hotter temps usually come in July and August and, uh, we live in an older home, which, which doesn't really have air conditioning. And so it gets, it gets pretty hot, um, upstairs and it stays really nice and cool in the basement. So I'm thinking about just moving my bed to the basement and just calling yeah. it a day. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and the worst part about all the heat rising is that the mosquitoes start to come out. It's like little armies of, of those guys. And man, they, they are, they are an amazing species, um, that they just replicate like nothing else, man. And they're just, they're always there. It's like that you find, you kill one, you get the brother, the sister, the cousins they are all coming <laughs> after you, man. It's just nonstop. Right. Right. It's, it's terrorist math. You kill one, you create a hundred more terrorists. Uh, that, that's a good way of thinking about it. Yeah. They, are, they are terrorists in my mind. They, the invasion is happening. So, right. um, yeah, that, that's one thing I can say about Denver is we don't really have mosquitoes. Um, if you get down nice. close to water, you'll find some, but for the most part, we don't really have them, which was a huge relief moving out here from Florida. Oh, I remember, geez. yeah, Florida, you just walked out, out of your front door in the evenings and you were just covered in mosquitoes. So yeah. that was a nice relief getting out here. Uh, can't say that I miss them. <laughs> no one, nobody misses the mosquitoes. No. Now, I don't think we should try and eradicate them the way I think Sam Harris mentioned on a podcast he did with Shane Parrish asking the question, should we, you know, if you could, would you, would you get rid of the mosquitoes? And, um, the, Shane was like, you know, I just don't know what the consequences would be, you know, like yeah. where they exist in every aspect of the, of the food chain and, and our ecosystem. And I, I kind of feel the same way. I hate them. But um, eradicating them like like a Thanos style snap sounds like a bad idea. Yeah, which means our government will probably try it. No, probably. <laughs> yeah, probably. The scientists will. Yeah, it's Spe yeah. it's it's your human right to not have to deal with mosquito bites. It, it definitely is my human right. Uh, <laughs> speaking of science, 
I would say the last two weeks have been eventful relative to uh, to the coronavirus. Do you want to kind of chime in on that? Yeah. Um, so, you know, for most people who haven't been living in, in a cave, something that was a conspiracy theory last year, talking about the Wuhan, the possibility that the virus was leaked out of the Wuhan um, lab has now suddenly become mainstream. Um, so we are no longer seeing people getting booted off of social media or called conspiracy theorists for um, saying that there's a possibility that the coronavirus leaked from the lab in Wuhan. And I, at first, I just shook my head at it. I figured, well, this is just the way things are. Um, it, it, we, we politicize this stuff so much that it doesn't surprise me that something that Donald Trump said last year um, got treated the way it did. And now this year, when Donald Trump is no longer in the picture, we're suddenly taking it seriously. Um, it, but the reason why I wanted to talk about it is I was listening to uh, a podcast, the All In podcast. And these guys, they were talking about this, this sudden change in the attitude towards this Wuhan lab leak theory. And seemingly, I, I mean, when I look at this, it seems like it, it, nothing has really changed. The information right. that we had available last year is essentially the same information we have available this year. But all of a sudden, the corporate media, the government, you know, uh, the big tech, the people who are controlling the Overton window, so to speak, are... Um, they're, they've now widened the window or, you know, opened it enough to let this, let people start talking about this. And on the all in podcast, you know, I know you listen to it more, more than I do. I'm more of just a casual listener. So I don't know the names of all the people on there. Um, but there is, from what I can tell, there's one, one guy is pretty conservative. Um, one of the guys is maybe a little more libertarian leaning. And then there's two of them are, um, uh, a little more Democrat, maybe progressive. Um, and, and one of those guys seems like he's just a outright Trump de derangement syndrome sufferer. Um, yes. I don't know. Do, do, do I kind of have that characterized correctly? I, I think so. There was a little bit of a breakup on the signal, so I missed part of what you were saying. But um, yeah, I mean, the, okay. the, as, as I see it, you sort of have one guy who, um, and I, I haven't been listening since they've done the full podcast. I started listening, I want to say, late last year. And um, one of the guys I think was definitely more, he hated Trump. I mean, it's yeah. downright hate him. And then one guy was maybe a little bit on the fence. And then there were times he said the guy you know, deserves to, I mean, they said awful, awful things. Um, and then other times it's kind of like, well, you know, it's part of the process. And so I think Chamath is, is uh, the one who, he kind of goes between polar opposites and you, you sort of see this in his extremes. Uh, he went after Robin hood with vindictiveness, not even criticism, but vindictiveness um, both on social media, on Twitter, as well as on that podcast. And um, when I think the Robin hood people came out, they, they kind of had some legitimate points that, you, you know, you can kind of, you can debate. And I, I think a lot of the Redditors and others that, that were screwed out of money, uh, certainly are, are upset with Robin Hood, but then there's the other side of it of not having the technology at all. So, I mean, not to go down the Robin Hood path, but there's the, the point is, is that I think there's some people that are on, the, on that podcast that are really anti-Trump. Some of them mm -hmm. are more just like situational. And then one guy was more, more defensive, less of Trump's personality. 
uh, and more about some of his policies. You know, and that's right, David right. Sachs, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so, so. sorry, I, I th- that's kind of my interpretation of the personalities. Yeah, so I, I think that's just a long way of saying, I think there's a, on that podcast, there's a, a pretty good range of um, attitudes towards free markets, politics, whatnot. Right. Um, but anyway, the, the reason why I wanted to bring this up is they asked, the question came up as to why why the media initially reacted the way it did to where it was calling anyone who brought this up as a conspiracy theorist. Um, and big tech started, started banning people for mentioning it on their platforms. And the, the guy who is the Trump hater, he put all the blame on Trump. He said, it's all Trump's fault because it's the way Trump said it's the way Trump brought up in the, in the language he used in the tone of his voice uh, when he was saying that the Wuhan lab was possibly the source of the coronavirus. Mm-hmm. And because of that, essentially what he was saying is because of the way Trump said it, that somehow gave the media a pass to not do its job. Right. And I think that is absolutely insane. I mean, to me, that is, that is entitlement gone crazy. That's entitlement culture on steroids. Um, to say that I don't like the way the president said this, so I'm not going to investigate it. And instead, I'm going to just call anyone who brings it up a conspiracy theorist is right. stupid. I mean, it is just outright stupid. Okay. You know, I'm sorry. It, you know, it, we, we've moved from a place of being offended by what people say to being offended by the way they say it, the tone to their voice, the words they use. I mean, how utterly irresponsible is that? Um, so if, you know, anyone in the media, I mean, you guys are supposed to investigate this stuff. You don't say, well, I, I don't like the way Donald Trump said it. So I'm, I'm just going to slam anyone who, who echoes what he said. No, that, that's not right. So, um, and you know, looking at this and I know like, uh, John Stewart's appearance on, um, Stephen um, Colbert's show is, is making the rounds now. And I think when you look back at this, right, Occam's razor, the simplest explanation is usually the correct one. Um, I know that's, it's, that's kind of a simplification of it, but that's essentially the way we think of it. I mean, when you're, when you've got a novel coronavirus in Wuhan that you've never seen before, right? That's what novel means, right? You've never seen it before. You don't know what it is. You don't know where it came from. And there is a Wuhan novel coronavirus lab sitting right there. You have to stop and say, okay, did it come from here? Okay. And this is what has made me laugh during the last year, listening to the people just calling this a conspiracy theory is it's just absolutely stupid. And you don't have to say, yes, definitely it came from the lab or no, it definitely didn't. Right. This is where probabilistic thinking comes in. Right. What, what is the possibility that it came from this lab? What is the possibility that it just happened to show up in the same town, same village at a wet market (laughs) where there's a lab study in these things? Right. So, um, and I think, you know, when people were, were, were talking about this early on, it, it, they really could have protected themselves from sound, sounding stupid or coming out looking stupid today, a year later. I mean, they could have said, you know, based off the information we have, we think it's not probable or, or you know, based off the information we have, you know, we understand that it's possible that it came from the lab, but not, we don't think that's the, the, the origin, right? You know, just it's, I know to some people it sounds like hedging, but that's what probabilistic thinking is. It's like it's it's taking into account that there may be other factors out there that you're not aware of. And when you do that, right, it it it, it protects you. 
so that a year later, when you do have to change your mind, you you don't have to backtrack and try to explain what you were saying. And, and you know, I heard Fauci, Glenn Greig wants in a treat out today, and I, ha- I haven't looked at the story more closely, but apparently Fauci is now saying that the government always encouraged people to be open minded about COVID. And it's like, what? Um, I don't think that's the case. And I think Fauci even said, right, there's no possibility that it came from the Wuhan lab, if I remember correctly. Right. Um, so when you speak in probabilistic terms and a year later you find out that you were wrong, you can come back and say, well, you know, back at the time, you know, we said we didn't think it was probable, but now we have new information. So we're updating our, our, our probabilities, you know, we're updating our, our focus. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to say that. I just, I just think it's hilarious that here we are, you know, what, six months into the Biden administration or so. Uh, and you know, people are still blaming Trump for the stupidity and the the unwillingness of the media to do its job, and right. I, I just yeah. think that's laughable. Uh, you know, so it, well, I, I don't know. What do you what do you think? Well, I, I I saw where the New York Times received a Pulitzer for their um, coverage on COVID. So let that sink in, <laughs> right? Um, you know, the Pulitzer I, I, for scaring everybody. Yeah, for uh, for publishing garbage yeah. for 365 days, um, and and getting uh, amazing growth in their online user base. Uh, that's that's actually where they should receive rewards. I, I think there's a there's a couple of points. For, first of all, I um, Scott and I recorded an episode in November of last year where we talked about the vaccines. And, you know, I think if you went and listened to that podcast, uh, even though it's all about vaccines, and what we're talking about here is is the origins of COVID, it, there's similar th- themes that we're, we're talking about here, right? We're talking about probabilistic thinking. We're talking about um, the fact that you don't have to be a conspiracy theorist to wonder what the incentive structures look like and uh, what's being used as grand narratives to try and drive certain actions or activities from the population. Um, and and I, th- I think if you looked at the last year of what happened, it, it you know, there, there, I have this concept in my head of, of certain ruling people, and that's just call me elites. They try and create a psychosis with us. What do I mean by that? A psychosis happens when you can see something in front of you. They, they call it gaslighting. Uh, but I, I think of it as a, as, a, as a psychosis because it makes you go crazy, right? It's like if you walked outside and you see the sun and you go, wow, the sun's shining and everyone around you says, no, 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 you can't say that. It's not shining. You go, but it is shining. There's, there's no clouds in the sky. There's, it's, it's not dark. It's not nighttime. No, no, no. You can't say that. It's, it, the sun isn't out. At some point, you, start, you stop believing your eyes, Right. And we're, humans are adapted to be able to see all of the information, hear it, read it, and come to conclusions. That's how we survive. And I think so many people were asking these basic questions without even using the really good models that you just shared. We're just going, this doesn't make sense. This doesn't add up. This, is, this just doesn't seem to make sense. The, 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 the virus, if it originated in a different province – Perhaps we wouldn't even be asking about the Wuhan lab, right? But the fact that it did originate in Wuhan, at, uh, from, from what information I have, uh, identified to, to be part of a market that's close to the Wuhan lab, 
suggests to me that that's the number, that's the start, the starting point that you should be looking at. So the, there's a bunch of different issues here. There's clearly a, um, a higher level, higher order problem, which has to do with the way in which the communist regime, the CCP, has embedded itself with different institutions and uh, has sway on how information is communicated. Now, you could argue, well, what the, the first question you get asked is, well, what evidence do you have of that? And I would push back, okay, Bayesian thinking, start with your priors and how you understand the CCP apparatus to operate within their own country and how they communicate information and how they share information. Then take that to see the numerous instances of politicians in different countries from Australia to Eastern European countries to Canada being told that they can communicate certain comments about the CCP. Then, then look at the information that we have about the relationship that the WHO has with the CCP and other relationships that the CCP has throughout the UN and other uh, supranational organizations. And ask yourself, would they not spend time trying to communicate a specific message? I think the, 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 the probabilities are very high that they would, which would mean to me that you need to investigate that with rigor, right? So it's, it, it's astounding. It's astounding. And, and it's, you know, it would be vindicating and enjoyable if this would lead to a sea change where the people that would call you a conspiracy theorist a year ago would next time you mention something perhaps not treat you as someone with green antennae growing out of your head. But I, I think, unfortunately, there, there's another aspect to it, right? There is exactly, and that came off of that podcast you listened to, the, the, the All In. There is a belief by many people on, uh, let's say, one end of the spectrum that the, um, that, that the communication protocols by the last president were the primary reason for a breakdown. And that breakdown is something to the effect of if, if he hadn't been in office um, and with the fact that he tweeted and the fact that he is, in their minds, clearly a homophobe, a racist, a bigot, a misogynist. If he wasn't if he wasn't communicating the way he had, um, none of the last four years and the challenges of the last four years would have happened. Right. They, they, they place 100 percent of the blame or 99, some large percentage on him and they don't spend time looking at the, the, the rest of the picture. And whereas for me, I could look at it and say, I, I think he, he built in a lot of ill will and created a lot of challenges for himself. Um, if, if, if the system is, is, is designed to be, um, multiple levels, multiple branches from the house to the Senate, to the, the fourth estate and the executive branch. And you're basically telling me, well, it doesn't matter. The executive branch didn't have to do their job. And the Senate and the House, which I think we have multiple examples, didn't do their job. They're basically telling me that we're, we're all dependent on one person. And then, and then, then I'm asking, okay, well, is the media currently doing their job with the current administration? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, anyone who follows me on Twitter, I, I, I tweet a lot about authority alone isn't enough. Um, you have to have credibility that goes along with it, and. I, this ties back into the probabilistic thinking. Like you lose credibility when you say, 
something is untrue. It's a conspiracy theory. And then a year later you come back and say, oh, well, no, we need to investigate it. Right. You've, you've, right. T- you've completely lost credibility. I will not, I wouldn't say completely. You've lost a lot of your credibility. Right. Um, especially when it's, it appears to everyone that your reasons for discounting this theory originally were because you, you're against the person who, who said it. And that's the big problem. And, you know, no one, when we talk about public trust, trust in the media, trust in the government, it, it, it doesn't matter who said it or how they said it, right? If, if there's any possibility, any viability to it, right? It, the American people deserve to have it looked into. And that goes back to, you know, the Occam's razor thing, right? I mean, obviously you should have looked into this lab and, you know, and apparently there was some cursory investigation into it. And this is just another layer added on top of the CCP trying to control um, what's communications and what people are saying about it. Add this other layer in that the, apparently the gentleman, I don't want to say gentleman, the person, the guy, who was being looked at as a credible authority and who I guess worked for the who to do some investigation into this lab was also the guy who was responsible for dispersing grant funds for gain of research (laughs) or gain of function research. Yeah. So right. Add that conflict of interest in right on top of all this um, and, and his interest in keeping this secret and Fauci's, you know, obviously he was interested in keeping it secret based off the emails that we've seen. And the entire thing is just a mess. And, and for the press to come back and say, well, you know, we did, we don't have to investigate it because Trump said it. And I mean, that, that's just, that's amazing. It, to me, that is just laughable. Well, and, and to be fair, I mean, it wasn't the press saying that this was someone on the all in podcast was saying, that's the reason he right. thinks why the press didn't investigate it, but still, um, it, it's just entitlement. I don't have to do my job because I don't like the person who said this. No, that, that, that no, and, your journalists and, do your job. That this is the origins of COVID. Wait until if you haven't already check out the latest podcast from Brett Weinstein on the dark horse where he talks to uh, um, two people. One of them, I believe, is the discoverer. Um, the person credited with discovering mRNA as a usage for gene therapy for viruses, and another gentleman who is a um, serial entrepreneur who's made it his mission to figure out ways of solving COVID outside of vaccines. And so he's, he's thinking, okay, outside the box, what do we have in terms of a toolkit? It's a three-hour conversation, and it is fascinating. And the, the reason I bring it up is there, there's, there's whole pieces you could unpack. But uh, they talk about the fact that there, um, you know, Corona hits. We don't have information about what it does to the body, uh, how it spreads. We're trying to gain information. But then you have frontline medical uh, personnel that are um, experimenting with different types of drugs and treatments or what they call protocols to try and stop the spread, um, you know, decrease death rates, decrease morbidity rates. And. Uh, they identify a whole slew of different options, uh, and they talk about specific drugs. I, I don't want to say them right now because uh, they, they do a better job of kind of talking about the different protocols. But um, what you realize is that there are incentives in place, monetary incentives in place, 
um, both from an insurance perspective, also a direct payment perspective, to not use existing drugs uh, that can be highly effective in treating COVID uh, to the point that you have people, um, you know, they use an example, Dr. Phil, uh, sorry, not Dr. Phil, Dr. Drew, uh, who is a, a radio podcast host, I believe lives in Los Angeles, had COVID, tried, uh, tried a series of drugs, and then he finally tried one of the drugs that they were talking about. He was what they call long haulers. And that drug basically got rid of the symptoms of, of COVID uh, after months and months of dealing with the long-term or long-haul uh, effects. The, the, it is a complex structure that prevents us from seeing the truth about how to deal with the disease that doesn't want to get to the origins of it. And um, you realize the incentives are truly in place to have the outcome that we had, which is basically you lock people in and you act like it's, it's an untreatable, uh, irreversible problem. And then you uh, go about um, creating uh, brand new novel vaccination protocols with an unknown safety record. And if, if you have been vaccinated, I do suggest listening to that podcast, not as a, uh, oh my gosh, I did something stupid or terrible, but in knowing that there's considerations if you're thinking about giving it to children and thinking about giving it to people with um, who are pregnant or thinking about becoming pregnant, uh, because there's there's just some unknowns. And I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Um, yeah, this entire thing. And, and, you know, and if you're out there saying that, you know, you don't think money had anything to do with this, just go look at Pfizer's Q1 profit. I think it's it set a record, if I understand right. Their Q1 profit this year was larger than any yearly profit that they've ever had or something like that. Um, yeah. And my understanding is if any of these other treatments had been looked at as credible ways of, of dealing with COVID, then the vaccines wouldn't have gotten their emergency use authorization. Yep. So there was definitely a huge incentive there to... Um, keep these things buried. And it it appears that during this time, like officials were just willfully ignoring experiential evidence in, and they were, you know, apparently saying, well, there's, there's no experimental evidence to support these. And we're just going to ignore, you know, all the successes out in the world from doctors who've been developing these protocols and using them. So, Um, so which, you know, is, is another, which is another issue in so, itself. So, yeah. So what one of the real takeaways for me on listening to that podcast was uh, the one research doc, who the, the one who, uh, again, I think is credited um, or had a, a direct part in identifying mRNA as a or RNA as a, um, a therapy for virus protection. He works with the DOD today. Uh, he's, a, he's a research doc. Um, I mean, that's his specialty is immunology and virology. And he said, the system is set up to, to go something like this. Okay, you, you want to do uh, a drug that's, that's off the shelf today. Uh, you need to have a peer-reviewed paper showing that the, um, the drug is effective. Well, it's, it's an order of magnitude, 10x, 20x, 100x more harder to get a peer-reviewed paper published on an existing drug than it is to get on a brand new drug, right? 
which you go, okay, well then, so, so you, you've, you've already taken out. So you've got the experiential evidence, which shows doctors are actually show, being successful at using um, existing drugs to uh, treat a, a, a disease, in this case, COVID. They want to they publish a study. People won't accept the study. And if you look at the, 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 you trace the grants of how all the information flows, it flows back through organizations like the NIH, which then sets the standards. So you, you have this whole circular loop that they create a, so, so, so to, to the non-observer, you think, oh, there's a process that I go through. I, I, I have results of a, of a test. I put it into a paper and I can get it peer reviewed and then I get it published. And then we can have results on knowing what I did. But it, so it looks like on paper, right? It looks like a very clean, natural process. What you have is a way it's, it's, it's got like, you know, bureaucracy grind to achieve a certain process because the, the, you have all these, um, call it gated areas of approval, which are not incented to allow for that paper to go through. Yeah. So yeah. The, the entire process, again, it looks clean on paper and it's as dirty as a sewer pipe in reality. Yeah. Yeah. In the law, we have this concept of facially neutral, but discriminatory impact. Um, and that is, that sounds like what's going on here is that when you look at the, the process, it seems like it's very neutral and that one paper has as much of a chance of getting through as another, but the actual implementation of the process is highly discriminatory. Um, so that only, um, information that supports a particular narrative, um, is, is able to get through. And, you know, again, this is why it's a bad idea to have government involved in this stuff, at least to the degree that it is. I mean, I personally, I don't think government should be involved at all. Um, but for, you know, the folks out there who think we need some degree of a minimal government, then, you know, fine, let the government be there. Let it be a referee just to make sure no one's going out of bounds, but otherwise stay out of it. Um, because yeah. um, this is just I don't know, the, the entire COVID thing. My, my attitude towards politics going up into last year really was, you know, politics was, it was amusing for me. Just the absurdity of what people do is something that I just, I'd like to look at and laugh at. Right. Um, so that, that's why I paid attention to politics mostly is for the absurdity. But last year it really got brought into focus for me. Um, exactly how much impact these politicians can have on our lives. And right. so now I'm, I'm taking politics much more seriously and I'm probably a, a worse person for it. <laughs> I certainly don't <laughs> feel better, but you know, I feel like it's something that I have to do. I don't think, think it's something that we can just ignore anymore. So yeah. um, that's, as I was talking to, to someone else and I mentioned the idea that, you know, that, that's imagine your life and your interests are a bubble. And, um, you know, 20, 30 years ago, that bubble was a hundred square meters, right? It was, it was massive. There were, there were all kinds of topics that were out that, you know, within that bubble, uh, that were not political, that nothing in that bubble was, was a political statement or a political leaning. Um, it was really, really big. And now, uh, you know, walking outside without a mask on, uh, so taking a stroll around your neighborhood has become a political topic. Uh, what kind of music you're willing to play and listen to if someone has been canceled or, or talked about like you, the, the, that, that bubble is, is going smaller and smaller. The circle is growing smaller and smaller to the topics that are apolitical. And 
So by default, people are going to become more political because almost everything becomes a political statement. And um, it's it's not that's the world in which you live in. Now, you know, you can take the philosophy of you can ignore it. You can walk away from it. uh, And that's that's that may be possible for you. And, And I think in general that that's a good policy to take. However, as Scott, as you're pointing out, when the implications are directly, if they're local, right, you got local versus global. If we're constantly debating global topics that we can have no impact on and and really don't have a massive impact on us, that's very different from the local impact that happens that we all saw last year with lockdowns, um, with you know the closing down of, of cities and towns, of um, and, and just the way in which we operate it. And then on our digital communities, having having a lockdown and what we're allowed to talk about um, that you know many of us would have prior to last year considered 100% within the Overton window. So, I mean, yeah. we're, we're in a, we're in a different, different space now. And, uh, unfortunately that may mean that we do need to be more active. Uh, and, and I imagine this isn't the only topic that we feel strongly about. Yeah. Yeah. I think of politics as kudzu. Um, so for the folks who are in the South, you probably know what kudzu vines are um, or what kudzu is, but it's, it's a vine that's native to Asia. Um, and it was brought over to the U S and it is, it's an invasive species that is just eating up the the South um, and Central, um, and, and I believe it's gone into South America now. And it, it, so it, that's what I think of as politics: is it's it's an invasive species that is just it's just growing its way into all parts of our lives. Yeah, that's, that's and, a great, great way to look at it. Yeah. And I'm, I'll post in the show notes a link to uh, a nice article on kudzu for those folks who want to uh, <laughs> who who want to read about it and just see just how much of a problem it is. But anyone who's spent any time in Florida, I guarantee you've seen it. You may not have known you were looking at it, but it's it's just it, it's everywhere. It's just draped over the tops of trees. Um, so that I yeah, that's that's the way I think of government. It's 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 the the uh, kudzu. Of, of our of our lives i think should we should we use that as a transition point to talk about maybe a positive version of kudzu that's taking over bitcoin uh, <laughs> uh we can i'd i mean yeah now, now that you say that because i i think i'm gonna throw a little bit of water on on the uh the uh, the happenings in bitcoin so that's, i don't know maybe i'm mr negative nelly today but uh, maybe. yeah let's let's go into it maybe maybe all right so we 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 <laughs> We, we spent a good chunk of time talking about the uh, the going on of, of COVID and, and using that just as a springboard to talk about um, a lot of the challenges that you're seeing with our communication. But uh, the next one is interesting because I, I think it's um, it's about the ongoings of Bitcoin. And so uh, anybody who follows the topic of Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies knows that I, I believe it was last week or the week before El Salvador uh, passed a bill uh, that basically creates a Bitcoin as a legal tender and gives it the same legal status as the, um, as the dollar, the U S dollar, which is used as the tender, uh, of record in, in the country today. And, uh, obviously many proponents in the, uh, Bitcoin community sort of, um, they cheered this on as proof that adoption is occurring and, uh, in, you know, many of the, I think, proponents looked at the 
Uh, they looked at the bill and, and, and saw some challenges. I think they also saw this as sort of a, a continuation of the, of the misunderstanding of what Bitcoin is and isn't. And so uh, we thought we'd spend a little bit of time talking about that. And, uh, you know, I, I think there's a couple of different points that are interesting. I think, you know, the first question is, why would a country do it? Uh, the next one is, is it going to be positive or negative? And then I guess the third question could be, you know, what is, what do we look for as this develops? Uh, do you think those are the right questions to ask? Um, yeah, I think those are good questions to start with. Um, I, I would also, like I said, I don't, not to throw cold water on this, but there's like, there's a couple points about the, um, about El Salvador's adoption of Bitcoin that is, it actually runs counter to the Bitcoin ethos mm -hmm. that I think is pretty interesting. And for the people that I saw cheering on the adoption of Bitcoin in El Salvador, there, there wasn't much talk of um, the, the way the law, law is worded. Um, so yeah. I, I think that's, that's pretty interesting. Um, yeah. So I don't know. One thing that struck, that stood out to me is that the market didn't really seem to react to this in any major way. Right. Um, I, I think Bitcoin went up for maybe a short time and then it, it went back down. Um, and I mean, we saw what just Elon Musk has done to Bitcoin by tweets. Um, yet the announcement of a country adopting Bitcoin as legal tender um, really did not have anywhere close to that same effect. So I'm, I'm kind of wondering why. Um, what what else is going on here? Um, yeah, or is, I, is Elon Musk just that powerful? Yeah, well, I, I, I think I think what that does is speak to the speculative nature of of where Bitcoin's price is relative to value. So you, I, I always divide in my mind value from price, and so you have gaps um, between the two. And so the uh, the question being does does the the price as it as it is today reflect Current information, um, future information. What what is it focused on? And so I, I think clearly, uh, the people that are invested in today that hold large positions that maybe are uh, more speculative in nature, i.e., they're looking to get in and get out. Um, this wasn't enough of a news um, piece to to merit you know jumping back into the game. Uh, you see, you know, fifty percent correction since I want to say May. And, um, you know, people sort of look at that and go, well, you know, we're, 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 this isn't enough of a catalyst. And um, I, I saw a lot of information. So being in the space a long time, one of the challenges that I find is that uh, memes or ideas get lodged in people's heads and they turn into facts. So one of them, I, I believe, is that Japan, someone's a big deal. Japan already legalized this uh, four years ago. And then someone else put in there and said, well, no, actually, it's a bill that's been sitting in the legislature for four years that's never been passed, right? And so um, it's, it's not clear to me uh, that uh, the market's quite digested if this is, this is good or bad um, or that the people that are investing in, in Bitcoin today um, are really that interested in, um, you know, country adoption. Yeah, that's a good point. Um, yeah, not everyone who is buying into Bitcoin maybe supports the ethos, the idea of, you know, this is the a, a free market currency, essentially. Right. Um, 
yeah, it, what you said about that, the gap between value and price was pretty interesting too, because, you know, it, from my perspective, you know, I look at value as something that's subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, there isn't always a positive gap between value and price. Sometimes it's negative. Um, if right. I value something much more than you do, you may be willing to sell it to me for less than what I value it, of course. And then that's a win-win situation, right? If you're, you're getting, you're getting more in return for what you value the asset, I'm getting the asset for less than how I, what I value it, right? That's a win-win voluntary transaction. Um, so there's probably, so when you talk about this, yeah, there's, there's probably people out there who value Bitcoin much higher than what it's trading at. But I guess those folks weren't enough to, or this news wasn't enough to get those folks into the market to pull the price up, I guess. Um, the people who think, essentially what I'm saying is the people who think that Bitcoin is underpriced right now, they may value one Bitcoin at 60000 and right now it's trading around 40000 um, so the, the idea is that those people would come into the market and buy up Bitcoin and that would cause the price of Bitcoin to rise. Um, and news like El Salvador, right. That would, that would cause them to increase their subjective value of Bitcoin. So maybe they would no longer think it's worth 60,000. It's now worth 70,000, which would just cause people to put more money into Bitcoin. Um, but I get, I guess that just, that didn't happen. Um, and, and, you know, the Bitcoin market is small enough that we do see people, you know, like Elon Musk swinging the market with just a tweet. So that tells me it doesn't take a lot of money to move the market, which makes me wonder if, if anyone really put money into Bitcoin in response to this news. Yeah. I, I mean, I follow some of the, uh, several analysts and, you know, who look at the blockchain and study inflows and outflows of certain wallets, uh, which you could, you could, you know, I guess to uh, analogy to that would be institutional money coming in. Um, if, you know, you knew that a specific wallet was associated with uh, a private office or a um, pension or, or something similar. But uh, what, what they saw is that, you know, the, the continued sell-off has been bought up by long-term ho- holders. So you have sort of this small group of people that absolutely are buying more. Uh, but, you know, I, I wonder if their price point is so high in their minds of where they think that this experiment is going that, you know, the difference isn't 60 and 70,000. Uh, it's more on it's more magnitude and in their mind thinking this is this is on the road to a million dollars per Bitcoin. Right. That's that's their mentality. Um, that's different from the speculator who can say, okay, I think this gives it an edge of, uh, you know, 5,000, 10,000, or, you know, some five to 20%. Um, you know, I mean, ultimately I think you could easily look at this and say, Hey, this is this, to your point, this says a lot about market structure, uh, about the inefficiencies, um, that, you know, 14, 13 years into this thing, uh, this grand experiment, started in 2009 we have a country that's adopted it albeit a small country and um and the price doesn't move price doesn't go up at least right so what does that say about whether or not this is actually being used for anything other than speculative money and i I think that's a good question and you know we can couch it uh, as someone who's who who believes in the movement of of the crypto space uh, for for you know just the reason of being a um, a challenge to 
some of the, the worst excesses of sovereign nations. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a question that isn't really answered. I mean, we can say whatever we want about the, the technicals and price, right? Um, but, uh, you know, the fact that it didn't move that much, eh, you know, yeah. the, 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 the other side of it that perhaps is, is difficult to, to kind of get our arms around is, is how many people don't like the idea, particularly in this community that are many come from more of a libertarian mindset. They don't really like the idea of government sanctioned items, right? They, exactly. they almost, they almost see a net negative when a country adopts it because, it, it it's legitimizing it in, in the eyes of the government, which they're saying, no, we're, we're intended to go beyond the government. Right. So now, now yeah. the fear is, do you have people that are going to come in and try and, and control it? Which, you know, y- you sort of look at the, uh, the attack surface for, for Bitcoin and you go, well, th- this was always a challenge, right. From sort of internet trolls and internet personalities to, to nation states or governments. I mean, it's always a challenge, right. Yeah. So, um, it's hard, yeah, and it's that's, hard to say. Yeah. And I mean, that's what exactly what I was going to bring up is the fact that, um, El Salvador's approach, actually, it goes against the Bitcoin ethos. Um, right. So, yeah. So, you know, and I wonder getting back to this idea of speculate, I wonder if this really does show that Bitcoin is mostly a speculator's market and they're looking at this saying, well, you know, El Salvadorans like, they don't have a lot of money now. We can't expect them to just run out and put all their money into Bitcoin and start yeah. using it. Um, that this may not even generate a lot of extra demand for Bitcoin. Um, so the, the speculators, you know, maybe are, are just sitting on the sidelines just waiting to see what happens. Um, yeah. Whereas the, the folks who, you know, they, they view Bitcoin as the, you know, like you said, the, the, the thing that's going to take down central banks and whatnot are looking at this, you know, maybe kind of a little sideways saying, you know, this may not really be all it's cracked up to be. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah I want to, so, so there's some really interesting data points that really do challenge the narrative a little bit. I, I would say from both, from all directions. Right. So um, I think I heard a bit of the, uh, discussion or speech that the CEO of Strike uh, gave at the Miami Bitcoin conference that was a week or so ago. And he, he I think he cited a number that like 70% of El Salvadorians don't have bank accounts. So this is yeah. what in the traditional language of the bank is called unbanked or underbanked Bank, or yeah. unserved, right? And this problem is pervasive in the uh, emerging or the third world, right? And I'm not sure if El Salvador sits above or below that, that classification of third world uh, from an economy point of view, but it's, um, it, you know, part, most parts of Africa have to deal with this. A lot of parts of Southeast Asia have to deal with it in Central and South America. This is a problem. And so um, you, you, I, I think the first question we have to ask the traditional system is why haven't you found a way to bank these people and give them financial services so that they could build wealth? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Talk about and the first Bitcoin, principles. Uh, the Bitcoin people point out all of the flaws in the plumbing of the existing banking system, uh, which is basically the, the cost of of onboarding through paperwork costs and through liquidity requirements for banks makes it inefficient or costly to actually have these these people on their balance sheet. 
right? They have yeah. liabilities that they, they owe to them, and it's just too, too expensive. Part of that is given out because of regulations, right? Uh, in fact, I would argue most of that comes from regulations. Banks that want to take high-risk people into their bank, um, it's, it's more costly than it should be, right? And you hear a lot of politicians, I'll, I'll cite Elizabeth Warren, as acting as if it's the bank's fault. I would point the finger right back at her and say, what have you done to make regulations, you know, create sandboxes so that banks can reach these people? If it's profitable, they want to do it, right? So right, right. Um, I, I, I think that the, um, you know, the, the, so that, that's a first point I'll make, right? Uh, the second point that I find interesting is, that, is the remittance uh, discussion. So I, I think I looked it up. Um, it's, you know, these are all rough numbers probably, but somewhere between 15 and 20% of El Salvador's GDP comes from remittances. And I would imagine a lot of that's coming from the United States. Not all, I don't have a breakdown. Uh, but that, that works itself out to about 10 billion. There are 56 billion GDP as of 2019, uh, probably took a hit after COVID, but you know, that, that's a huge chunk of change. And if you look at the, um, you know, expenses for remittance sent around the world. And we, that, that's a whole, you know, thorny area to get into anyways. Um, that can run anywhere between four to five to 10 to 20%. In fact, the, the, the average that I saw, um, the, uh, and it really depends on geography when you're going from specific geography to another. Um, when you send a remittance from, let's say, the United States to El Salvador is about 4%. Uh, and this was a couple of years ago. Uh, but it can be as high as 10%. So if you have a way to bypass that and you can you can actually increase the amount of remittance that arrives into El Salvador, well, El Salvador has a incentive to try and make that happen, right? Because it instantly gets more, more wealth flowing into its country just by virtue of going through a less expensive conduit. There's reasons that those remittance costs are high and there's also reasons that they could be lowered. And that's another area where I'd ask, you know, my friends in Congress, why is it that it's so bloody difficult for people to send money home? Why is it so expensive? It's not just the banks. You, you want to blame the banks. I'm sure there's speculative going out there, but, um, you know, there, there's questions about that. Now, those are two main areas that I kind of look at and say, okay, there's, there's rationale and there's, there's a good argument to be had for something different. And I think a lot of people that are, um, you know, against, they, they can be against Bitcoin. They, they assume that they're going to be able to pass policy measures that are going to address this. And, you know, I look at them and say, well, well then why hasn't it happened before? And why does it, why is it so pervasive everywhere? Well, corruption. Okay. Well, if corruption is the issue, do you honestly think that we're going to be able to change that? Or do we need a third rail? So I, that's that's kind of a starting point. So I, I, you know, I just went kind of on my tirade of asking questions of why I think I think there's there's many reasons. Um, and I know reading a Mises.org um, write up, they they also they were they were negative on it. I think they had some good criticisms um, or good questions. But do do you think that there's other reasons uh, that people could or would want to you know adopt it as a country? Um, so yeah, it's a hard question. Um, I think, you know, overall, I think this is going to be an interesting experiment. I think we want to, 
it'd be nice to see where it goes, what happens. Um, but it, you know, it's not, I don't think anything that, that is going to change the nature of finance of global finance or anything. Um, you know, why a country would want to adopt it, you know, it's hard to say. Um, and, and I, I happen to kind of fall on the side where I don't think countries should be adopting Bitcoin. They should just not be regulating it. Right. Right. They should just allow it. Um, because when you talk about a country adopting it, right, that, that goes against, like I said, the Bitcoin ethos of having free markets. Um, and I, you know, so I just want to point out like, like this law that El Salvador passed, right. There's article seven says that every economic agent must accept Bitcoin as a form of payment when it is offered to him by whoever acquires a good or service. Mm-hmm. So that's the government saying you don't have a choice, Mr. Businessman, Mrs. Businesswoman, you have to accept Bitcoin. Right. Okay. Um, which, you know, that, that is, call it what you want. Um, you know, it's authoritarian. I mean, Mm -hmm. that's the government coming in saying that you have to accept this. Um, then article 13, all obligations in money expressed in dollars existing prior to the effective date of this law may be paid in Bitcoin. Well, that's the government coming in and altering uh, pre-existing contracts, which is a huge no, no, um, at least as far as, you know, the Bitcoin ethos goes, right. That's, that's government stepping in and saying, you know, you, you have to now accept Bitcoin in lieu of dollars, right. um, which I think is going to upset a lot of people um, who, who have contracts um, because now they're being forced to accept some, uh, some volatile thing. I don't want to call it a currency, but some, some volatile thing like Bitcoin in lieu of something that's more stable, like a dollar. Um, yeah. So you're, you're essentially, you're forcing them to take on risk. Um, and that, that's, that's difficult. And the, so the, the, the El Salvadoran government, right, they're trying to combat this by they, they're creating a fund um, where they're guaranteeing that the citizens can always exchange their Bitcoin for dollars out of this fund. But then the question comes up is like we said, Bitcoin is highly volatile. So what happens? Is this fund going to be able to stand wild swings in the price of Bitcoin? So let's say Elon Musk, you know, he tweets something about Bitcoin tomorrow, causes the price to go up to a hundred thousand dollars, and everyone in El Salvador is running to trade in their bitcoins really fast to take advantage of the the high price, right? Is is this fund going to be able to withstand that, or is El Salvador going to be going to out to the world saying, you know, help bail us out? We've we're giving all of our money away in exchange for these bitcoins. Um, so, yeah, uh, you know, so th- to me, that's why it's an interesting experiment, but there's still just way too much government interference here. And, you know, you brought up strike and strike. Um, my understanding is, I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's affiliated with the government, but it was set up to essentially build off the lightning network to try to, increase the, um, to, to try and improve the transaction, the Bitcoin transactions, the speed and the, the costs. Right. Um, it, they're essentially being handed a, a market basically. Yep. And so the question is, is like, you know, being given this head start on this market, how much control are they going to be able to exert over, yeah. over Bitcoin usage in the comp in the country? Um, right. so that, that's another interesting, um, take on this that it, I, it 
this stuff just isn't getting a lot of press. And I don't think a lot of the, uh, the Bitcoiners out there who are touting this as some great, some great thing are really thinking about these types of things. Um, well, yeah. And I, uh, I listened to a conversation with Nick Carter, who is a prominent uh, Uber bull on Bitcoin. And he, he actually did raise some of these uh, uh, concerns and, um, you know, he, he actually echoed some of your sentiment of, you know, does this really hit the ethos of, of Bitcoin? Yeah. And, you know, I, one thing that's happened to me is sort of softening a little bit on maybe some of my, I guess you could call it principles of how this has to work versus how I think it may work. Right. So there's there's an advantage somewhere uh, for El Salvador and, and likely other countries to adopt a, a crypto and and you you could i mean whether it's good or bad for the people right which i think libertarians of which i have many leanings look at the people and say i believe in the sovereign individual that they that their rights matter uh as an individual and so uh when i think about the state and, and enforcing its will on the people um there, there's a conflict there right but that doesn't Unfortunately or fortunately, it doesn't take away from the, the reality that there's benefits to governments that are under the thumb of the U.S. government. And, and by that, I mean they are beholden to getting loans from the IMF, uh, which uses those loans to effectively buy off political power within a country. And this is this is actually not very different from what the Belt and Road uh, Initiative is from China, where they come in and offer up infrastructure, and uh, in exchange for concessions. And you know, hey, great, we're getting a dam built by by China. Oh, by the way, they want all their people building it. And then in some places, I think in the Philippines, they actually annex the place, right? Uh, they actually take took over a part of the Philippines, basically saying, well, you owe us money, so we're taking this now. Um, the IMF it does it under the guise of democracy. And, um, but I mean, there's, there's story after story of countries getting screwed. And so, uh, the reality is, is that places like El Salvador have, if they have an option to use a third rail financial system to accrue wealth for the betterment of perhaps just the elites in the country, and perhaps some of that goes down to the, to the, um, to the people below them. It actually fits what I think people have been seeing or have been saying about Bitcoin, right? Which is both good and bad, right? To your point, it doesn't necessarily directly uh, enable freedom for the individual, but it maps to the fact that there are countries that are more or less um, kind of taken out of the financial world because of their size, because of their military us, um, because of their military importance and because of what they can offer the world in terms of resources, that um, they would benefit from being able to use other other ways of, you know, using <laughs> using technology to benefit themselves, right? And I'll, I'll give an example. Yesterday, I read about in Ethiopia, and I don't follow Ethiopia at all. Uh, there's a group of people that are that are. Um, talking to the government about using a brand new dam, a hydroelectric dam to mine Bitcoin. Okay. That's sure. Whatever. Call it, call it green Bitcoin, right? Cause it's, it's hydroelectric. Um, so it's, it's theoretically a green, green technology. 
Their argument, though, which I found really interesting, their argument was you've you've invested mass sums of money to be able to give some of the electricity you take from the dam and give it to neighboring countries like Djibouti. You could make 10x the amount of revenue and use that to reinvest in Ethiopia rather than building those lines, those that electricity and selling it off to Djibouti. So now they have a finan- they have a direct financial opportunity that goes above and beyond what they can do from electronic uh, electric dispersion, right? To actually give electricity out to other people that I'm sure want it. They can they can they now have a, a, an opportunity to make a lot of money <laughs> relative to what they were going to be making with this. So now they ha- they have a cost benefit analysis. Whether you like it or not, if that's the way you, you intended for Bitcoin to be used, you have to to you can't ignore that fact. I'm not saying the government's going to do it. There's a lot of reasons why they shouldn't do it, um, but there's also reasons why you could kind of see that it makes sense. Hell, they could even invest that, give some of that money to invest it in Djibouti or reinvest it in Ethiopia, and and probably they may be able to actually get better returns. So um, I, I say all that to say that. It's, it's a challenge because what we want to happen and what we want in our principles isn't, you know, it doesn't always take place. But at the same time, there's, 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 a, new, there's a new paradigm that's, that's at play here that, that could just alter how all this stuff works. I mean, Balaji talked about it. So basically, you have the U.S. ecosystem, you have the Chinese ecosystem, and you have a third rail ecosystem. You may not like that, but that may just be what evolves. Yeah, exactly. Um, that's a good point. And while you're talking, I, I wondered, um, you know, I think that the El, El Salvadorans who are forced to take Bitcoin, if I think if they can live within that Bitcoin ecosystem, it, it, it may be a little more doable for them mm-hmm. if they're just exchanging Bitcoins all the time. But for yeah. those people who have to exist in the dollar ecosystem alongside of the Bitcoin ecosystem, right, you're they're getting exposed to a lot of risk. Right. Because, um, you know, just because of the volatility of Bitcoin. Um, and well, I, I don't I don't know really much about the El Salvadoran economy. So I don't know how much they deal with, um, you know, countries outside of outside outside of El Salvador who maybe wouldn't be paying in Bitcoin. But yeah, um, just something well, to think about. One of the most interesting observations was whether or not this could matter at the international level. So there is debate about whether or not countries that basically say, listen, we treat, let's say, Bitcoin as a certain type of asset class. So the United States today, it it still is very ambiguous, but more or less, the, the closest you can get is that they're treating it like real estate. And so if you buy it and sell it, your capital gains treatment uh, looks like real estate transaction um, and other laws that kind of pertain to real estate would, would pertain to this. Uh, by, by the way El Salvador is treated it's as a currency, uh, currency has a different tax treatment under you know, international law. And there's also some, some language that in, in, I don't know if this is, this is coming through um, the World Trade Organization or the United States government, I'd have to go back to the exact language, but it said something to the effect of, you know, you, a country, if they adopt a currency, you, you have to accept that currency, said currency, right? So the question became, well, if, if a country like El Salvador says this is our currency, then um, what does that mean for, um, 
what does that mean for the United States? Does that mean that they have to recognize it as a currency? So if like, I mean, I, I, take crypto out of this, right? What if, what if, um, you know, it, it, I, I don't know what the United States treats gold and silver as today. I don't, I don't believe, I mean, they, they have it, I, I believe in the language that they actually can. But if you, t- if you took a different metal or different commodity and they said, this is our new currency, would that change the way we, we look at it, right? Would we have to accept bushels of wheat as payment for a latte? Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of a crazy thought experiment, um, but it, it, it's an interesting challenge because it could create uh, more stress potentially on the system. Now, I think something that they could do, and I, I listened to a fascinating conversation with an analyst who does a lot of work on what he calls the euro dollar, uh, which is basically dollars printed by European banks because there's a shortage of U.S. dollars globally. Um, now, that's an oversimplification. It's a very complex topic. But if, if you think about it, um, you know the only banks that are allowed to uh, actually generate dollars are supposed to be uh, U.S. banks, right? So the way the way the money actually comes into existence, you the Treasury uh, can actually print dollars. That's actually like the paper bills, um, but the majority of the money comes through as banks are lending it out. So uh, theoretically, the only banks that are allowed to do that are state or U.S. sanctioned banks. However, there is this phenomenon where banks in Europe and and you know, conceivably other parts of the world are actually doing the exact same thing that U.S. banks do. Uh, you have multinational companies. They create these accounts um, on, um, you know, in, in, in the bank of choice, uh, wh- whatever your company is. So let's just say you're um, a, even a U.S.-based company, right? You're Exxon or you're Apple. And you want to have a dollar account in, set up in, in Germany to pay certain, certain invoices. Um, where did those funds actually come from? And we are back after some, uh, some delays here. Apologies. Uh, apparently, the internet does not like us today. I imagine it's someone trying to silence the freedom that we're trying to share. Um, but I, I'm not entirely sure where, where, where it broke off. But I think uh, where it is is I was discussing this idea of euro dollars, which is the it's, – it's a description of – U.S. dollars that are created by European, primarily European banks for U.S. denominated accounts on their books. And so um, money, uh, the M2 money supply, which most of us consider like, you know, the actual money supply comes when banks are loaning, right? They loan out money. Um, and when, when you get that, you get an increase in the money supply. And um, yes, the treasury can print, but it's primarily the M2 money supply that increases the money supply in the economy. And the, the, the idea is that the Federal Reserve or the treasury and the other sort of uh, financial institutions that we have in the country are trying to monitor the amount of supply out there. And they're looking at primarily the U.S. banks because they're the ones that they've chartered. Um, they're the ones that they have jurisdiction over. If other banks outside of that jurisdiction have the ability to generate, uh, to both increase and decrease the money supply, um, then it obviously makes their efforts less effective. And it can create other um, abnormalities in the uh, economics, uh, in the economy that they can't anticipate because their model is, is insufficient. Um, and Jeff Snyder, who's an analyst at, I believe, Alhambra Investments, 
uh, has done basically dedicated most of his career to understanding this phenomena. And uh, he has a lot of interesting views on money and, and what this and why most of our predictions about inflation and um, you know, QE end up being proven wrong, uh, where people say, you know, the economy is going to crash. So, well, no, not really. And here's the reasons why. He does a really nice job on it. But as it relates to Bitcoin, he had a really interesting conversation recently about what he called ghost money. And he, he gave a couple of examples of, of ghost money where when um, some type of currency is in short supply, you can't get a hold of it. Um, what what's happened in, in previous um, historical periods is that people will use basically alternatives, right? Um, and so he gave a couple of examples, um, but what, what came to mind was sort of this idea of um, in Africa years ago where people used uh, phone minutes as currency, right? Uh, because it was digital, they could transfer it. And, um, the, you know, the government couldn't really, they, they didn't really want to, deregulate or, or regulate money as, you know, minutes because, um, you know, they want people to be able to use their phones. Um, but people didn't really have either. They didn't have trust in the government um, with, the, with the money. Um, and the, the minutes were an easier way to transfer digitally, right? So it was less friction. And his point was that when, when dollars or other, any kind of currencies in short supply, people will look for alternatives. And I, I think that, you know, to bring it back to the Bitcoin discussion, that's that's critical. That's what people need to realize is that as technology or tradition allows for alternative ways to interact, uh, to pay, to build wealth, people will use it. Um, it's, it's not whether we want them to or not. It's that they are incentivized to find alternatives, um, to allow commerce to, to continue. Um, uh, I'm not sure that's a pro or con for El Salvador adopting Bitcoin. Um, I do think, uh, I do think that it's it should be kind of considered uh, for any uh, just in terms of your model of understanding why or how this stuff will be adopted. You know, there's there's the principles which I do think are important and really resonate with me, but there's also the the, the model of how this um, these new technologies are adopted and why they would be adopted. Um, and that just, that doesn't just go for, for Bitcoin that goes for the entire space, which is evolving into, I think, web 3.0 and DeFi, um, which, uh, I, I think it's, it's really starting to, to get some legs 10 years in, and, and that's probably where we're going to see just a lot of excitement in the coming years. So, um, what, what, what other points did you want to raise about, um, sort of this, this topic or, you know, El Salvador? Yeah. Um, it, just one more thing, and it, it kind of piggybacks on what you were just saying, is uh, after El Salvador adopted this, I saw um, something from the IMF where they said that you know they're going to have to look in how to regulate this. And my first thought is, why do you have to regulate it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know? right. Um, it, it reminded me of that um, Ronald Reagan quote, you know, if it, if it moves, tax it. If it keeps moving, regulate it. If it stops moving, subsidize it. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, the regulation for part of it is the establishment trying to maintain control. Because um, like you said, you know, they don't want that third rail that's going to let people out of their ecosystems. Um, so they're going to do everything they can to bring that third rail into their ecosystem. And they'll do that through regulation. Um, and that's unfortunate. And again, with I don't know how this would play out. 
but with El Salvador sort of officially adopting this with having a regulation that requires its citizens to um, to accept Bitcoin, then you're basically forcing your citizens into that ecosystem. Right. Um, so just another another reason why this maybe is not the be all to end all that um, um, some some folks are holding it out to be. Um, so, um, well, yeah, like I said, I think it's it's a really interesting experiment and I, I yeah. really want to see where it goes, what happens with this. Um, it, it wouldn't surprise me if a year from now this law is getting repealed. Um, yeah, I think that's a possibility. So but, you know, we'll see. There's a really interesting play here that um, and I, I think to me this goes into this this concept of these alternative currencies where the El Salvadorian government could make legal tender a, a stable coin. Uh, and so what is a stable coin for those who aren't familiar with the concept? The, the idea is that it's pegged to um, some type of value. And so it could be a basket of traditional currencies or what people call fiat currencies. It could be a single currency like the U.S. dollar. So um, the, the, I guess the pros and cons of that is that you can create, if you create a digital version of the El Salvador dollar, if you will, right, and use that within the, the country, you, you could um, actually give people a way in which they could transact, take out some of the, the currency risk. Uh, and by that, I just mean the volatility of, of you know, going up 20%, going down 50%, still give them the opportunity to, to save potentially. That's one of the problems with stablecoin is that because they are pegged, Relative to inflation, they are typically losing value. We are we are rarely in times of deflationary periods. We are usually in times of inflation periods. So uh, you would want to have some some allowment into a um, uh, into some kind of more um, you know growth asset, if you will, right? Which could be the the whole advent of DeFi. So there's there's different paths that could go. That's really going to be interesting to see from a uh, creativity from a freedom perspective. I think, you know, if if anybody in the Bitcoin community learned something over the last six months, it's that, you know, hanging a cape on somebody is a bad idea. I think a lot of people in the community did that with Elon. And when he pointed out his, um, his dismay with the amount of Bitcoin that was mined with uh, carbon positive, not positive stuff, positive message, but um, carbon-based energies i mean he, he he received the ire of the community right he went from being oh my gosh you're putting this on the on the on the books uh for tesla this is amazing to you're an idiot you don't know what you're doing and i i just think that's a that's a bad idea like you don't need an authoritarian to oversee this i think you can you can see what the experiment is you can encourage them to think of better ways to uh proceed and and you know, by the way, this isn't the only issue from an engineering perspective. Uh, Balaji talked about some of the other challenges that you have, which is custodial wallets. So in this in this area, basically, there's there's this idea: not your wallet, not your money, uh, because it's it's like having your your money in the bank. The bank can can take that money; they can seize it; uh, they can uh, they can not allow you to access it. But the problem with having all that money by yourself is that there's security requirements that go along with it. So you're going to have custodial wallets within, um, within the country. And the question is, how are those custodial wallets managed? Um, who, who actually, like, does the government restrict them? Or can anybody provide a custodial wallet? 
uh, education on what this means. I mean, it has to be it has to be given to the people. I, I don't know what the technology adoption is there. What's the right path for that information to get out? And then you just have a, a cost perspective, right? Um, of you know, there's settlement fees for using the Bitcoin network, which are up or down based on how how much of a bull cycle we're in or a bear cycle for for the network and how much network usage is occurring. That's different from Lightning Network. So um, I'm not an expert on Lightning, but my understanding is that you, you basically put money into Lightning. It's kind of a custodial network. You can transact in Lightning. Once you take that money out of the Lightning Network, it gets settled or built into a block on the on the Bitcoin blockchain. The, the, the importance of that is that while you're, while you're moving money in and out, you're not actually paying fees to Bitcoin, uh, which which can be you know rather high depending on the amount of money that you're um, sending, right? It's usually not very good for for smaller amounts, and it's usually very uh, very well priced for large amounts. So uh, these are all challenges that have to be you know sort of worked through. Um, there's ways in which the government can can make them better, I think, and there's ways in which the government can make them worse. Uh, and, and I think some of the alarms that, that you raised today are, are ones that we should all be aware of and we should, we should be cognizant of it. We don't, we don't need to, to raise El Salvador as some, um, you know, the example that I, I read was, you know, when you, when you sort of raise, raise them up as some golden example, uh, was uh, Milton Friedman going to Chile and working, I believe it was with Pinochet to try and uh, encourage market reform. Well, what he may have been doing for the for the economy may have been positive. Unfortunately, it also gave the appearance I was working with a dictator, which, in fact, he was. Right. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. For all those reasons, I mean, we'll have to wait and see. I, I hope my my hope is that we can you can see the benefits and the benefits can accrue to the broader population of El Salvador, um, and we're not seeing just a pure government grab yeah. because then it doesn't matter that it's Bitcoin. It's really no different than what I would suggest is happening right now in the United States. Right. Yeah. I think one thing we can be sure of is that it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds. And um, it's an opportunity for the average investor to, to really benefit or, <laughs> or lose a lot of money. Uh, this is not it investment advice but you know to the person who guessed right um if bitcoin shoots through the roof then you know they can make a lot of money um so outside of that i don't know the, the future just seems wide open um there's a lot of speculation about what's going to happen but very little really evidence um to see what way it's going to go and you know, Bitcoin or Elon Musk, I should say, getting upset about the energy usage of Bitcoin is is interesting because, number one, I would think like he had to know that going in yeah, before he, he started to go in on Bitcoin. Um, secondly, like Elon Musk, he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who would say, well, Bitcoin uses too much fossil fuels, so we're going to abandon it. He seems like the kind of guy who's going to say, OK, how can we come up with a way to mine Bitcoin without using fossil fuels? Uh, yeah. You know, the, the solar powered Bitcoin mining apparatus or, you know, I don't know. Um, I could see well, that just being another business for him. Um, yeah. So, and, and, I, I and actually, that was interesting. Yeah. yeah. What's what's interesting about that, right, is um, I listened to a conversation with a, um, uh, I think it was Mr. Beautiful from, uh, from Shark Tank. 
So he, he is an interesting character in that he has become, he went from being an absolute skeptic. You know, there's no value in this, never do it. So now he's a massive bull on, on cryptos. And uh, I'll, I'll get the link. We can include that in the show notes because he, he has a very interesting discussion of why he's so interested in it. And it boils down to something like this. I've got a lot of cash in, in the business portfolios that I run. I want to have some of that in something more, um, you know, kind of a, a hedge against, um, uh, you know, our other investments that we're doing from a treasury perspective. So I always want to have 5%. Uh, traditionally, I would have that in gold. Well, if I have it in gold, I'm not making any money off of it. But if I have it in crypto, I can, um, I can then go yield it out and get a return. So what he's doing with his companies is doing exactly that. And um, he's basically, his argument is that this is, I'm going to be looking to increase my stake. I mean, what he's inferring or what he's suggesting is that gold will likely become a smaller, smaller part of his portfolio as he can with crypto. He's he's going to increase it. Um, And and again, he can lend it out uh, safely and and, and still get get a rate of return. So it's got benefits over, you know, t- typical gold or traditional investment in gold. And he, what he said was, th- this is a great time to be buying into Bitcoin because every single company, pension funds, family funds, sovereign wealth funds, now they have a, a ESG committee that they have to work through. Uh, they have to invest. So any investment that you want to make is going to go through that. And why is that? Because Larry, I think it's Larry Fink, uh, I believe his name, he's the head of BlackRock. He's the CEO. He's made this kind of his life mission. He, he controls uh, in that position $11 trillion, right? So globally, you're seeing ESG grow as a concept, and it's being put in front of all the boards. And so Mr. Beautiful's point was, well, this is great because now Bitcoin can get ahead of this. You're going to see a defunding of carbon-based fuel for the Bitcoin mining network, and people are going to be able to charge a premium for green-minted Bitcoin. Right. They can say, hey, listen, yeah, it's more expensive, but it's it's green. And and then then you, you you contrast that conversation with the fact that El Salvador is talking about using geothermal fuel to mine Bitcoin. You have the example that I gave earlier about Ethiopia wanting to use hydroelectric fuel to mine Bitcoin. So the cost of, the, of, of mining Bitcoin is just going to go up. Well, traditionally, that's been associated with higher prices for the asset. So you, you kind of have a weird point in time that we're, we're looking at all the dynamics that are coming together uh, that to me suggests that the, the long, the, the, the runway is very long for where this is going. What it's going to look like in the future is hard. I think if you looked at the internet in 2002, people wouldn't say it looked like what it does today. Um, the, the, you know, social media is just the, probably the best example of us going, well, we, we didn't know what was, what was going to happen. But it's hard for me to be, I mean, quite honest, again, this is an investment advice. It's hard for me not to be extremely bullish on the space, um, even with the regulation that's going to come down or the, or the potential bans and how governments are going to interact with it. I still think this, and, and, and maybe it isn't Bitcoin at the end of the day, although I, I think that in a lot of ways that's the primary use case that's going to have value. Um, but the space in general, I think, has has a lot of room to run. And, and as Mr. Beautiful said, only 1% to 3% of treasurers globally, in his estimation, are doing this. Um, they still have gold. Um, and 
you're going to have options from decentralized finance that are just superior uh, to some of these other assets, even with the drawdowns. People say, well, what about the 50% drawdown? He says, great, I make money because I'm doing a rebalancing strategy. Uh, the more sophisticated people are, are going to really use this to their advantage. So, Exactly. Um, so we're at... I don't know. What are we at? About an hour twenty so far. Yeah, I, th I think we've we've gone far. I think uh, COVID COVID took up a lot of airtime, but it was, right. <laughs> it was a, we had to let that out. Yeah, um, you know, I've, I've got some more thoughts on on Bitcoin, um, especially what you you just mentioned about people using it as a substitute for gold. Um, but I think maybe we could cut it off here. Um, yeah. Obviously, we both we both enjoy talking about Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> I still need to really brush up on it to uh, develop some more expertise, but I'm sure we will have more, more Bitcoin discussions in the future. Yes. Yes, we will. So thank you for tuning in uh, wherever you are. If you're on Apple uh, podcast or if you're on Stitcher or uh, wherever you're listening to us, give us a thumbs up, give us some comments. We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can find us at mentallyunscripted.com. And uh, until next time, take care. Bye.